Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. Are you a woman who's ready to excel in her career and her life? Are you ready to be a professional saleswoman by using your inherent qualities? Are you a woman who wants to be better prepared for a leadership position? Then you're in the right place. Selling in a Skirt with Judy Hoberman. It's about women in business, work-life balance, leadership, and current events related to gender communications. Be prepared to be inspired, motivated, and challenged. Selling in a Skirt with Judy Hoberman is your connection to women nationally, internationally, and globally. So get comfy and see what the buzz is all about. Find out more at www.sellinginaskirt.com. Now, your host, Judy Hoberman, on C-Suite Radio. You know, when you think of starting a business, it only makes sense to do something that you know. If you're an engineer, you probably don't want to start a crafts business. If you're a talented graphic designer, you might not want to embark on a new career in SEO consulting. Understand what I'm saying? Because when I decided to start my own company, I asked myself several questions to help me define my focus. What did I know best? What could I do that would help people? What unique insights did I have to offer? And what makes me an expert? The last question is the most critical. What do I really care about? Now, you may excel at something and have unique insights to offer, But if you're not passionate about the work that you do and you don't keep your focus on that, then you're destined to fail. So it's time to stay focused with no distractions and keep your eye on the prize. Now, building a business takes sweat equity. In the beginning, you'll be filling multiple roles as you get your venture off the ground. Your passion for the work gives you the motivation to get started early every single day when there's no one else holding you accountable and provides the fuel that keeps you going through the ups and downs. Now, as I reflected on each of the questions myself, The answers helped guide me toward the goal of striking out on my own. Since I'd worked in sales for nearly three decades, the answer to the first question was obvious. I know sales. And as a corollary, I know people. And I know how to communicate. Is there one area in which you have extensive experience? Have you studied a particular niche or practiced a talent longer than most? Targeting the subject matter that you know best will help you stand out from everyone else. 
Now, the ups and downs of being an entrepreneur can take its toll on you. You spend hundreds of hours trying to get noticed. And when you finally start to gain traction in your business, life turns into an episode of Project Runway. One day you're in and the next day you're out. Throughout all the ups and downs, you have to keep your eye on the prize. So go back and review your initial goals and objectives. Have they changed? Have you added to them? Is the new business that you're doing still your passion? No matter what, things do change. So when I was selling insurance, most of us wanted to quit every other day. Some did. In my mind, there was no room for failure. If you wanted to get something done and you couldn't do it yourself, find someone that could help. Bring in the big guns, but don't quit. As an entrepreneur, to be successful, you have to be excited and passionate about what you do every single day. If you're in a corporate position, treat your role as if you were the CEO and have the right resources available to you within your reach. Your passion and focus will shine through. And yes, your eyes are still on the prize. You are focused. You must be also be prepared for the highs and lows in your business. One big piece is your mindset, and that includes believing in yourself and what you're aiming to accomplish. No matter how much planning you do, hard times will show up. This is not only the nature of business, but the nature of the world at large. Economies go up and down. Technology changes the playing field. New competitors come along who are faster or less expensive. In the big picture, you must find ways to adapt and find the strength to keep on keeping on. Now, a book that everybody should read no matter what is called Three Feet from Gold by Sharon Lecter and Greg Reed. The title comes from the concept of someone who has been digging in a mine shaft for years and then throws in the towel when it turns out that they were only three feet away from that vein of gold that would have made them a millionaire. The book conveys an important lesson based on the life of Napoleon Hill. The most common cause of failure is quitting. Success always follows a pattern. First comes a dream, followed by a struggle, and then there's victory. The problem is most people give up in the struggle section and never get to sense what victory feels like. So let me give you some ways to stay focused, keeping your eye on the prize. How about take a day off intentionally? Take a day to relax and recalibrate, but you have to decide to do it beforehand. I call it my presentation day, and I put all of my autoresponders on, letting everyone know I'm off-site and will get back to them in 24 hours. No one's waiting for an immediate response from me. The second is block unproductive sites or apps. Our biggest time waster is social media. With all the notification sounds and things popping up, it's no wonder we don't stay focused. The third is set small goals. Break down your big goal into smaller goals so that you can accomplish each week. Then break that down even further. What can you get done today or tomorrow that will make accomplishing this week or next week's goal even easier? The fourth is, and this is the key part, write it down. It's easier to keep yourself accountable to those small goals after you've committed to them on paper. The smaller the number is easier to reach, the more that is for the massive ones. Then you have to stay active. Studies show that regular exercise releases brain chemicals that are key for memory, concentration, and mental sharpness. So take a walk, exercise for a few minutes a day, ride a bike, dance around your office if you can. Just do something to get yourself moving. And then also, how about if you work for 15 minutes? Sit down and do something related to your work for just 15 minutes but you have to actually commit to doing it. Once those 15 minutes are up, reassess and decide if you could do it for another 15 minutes. Now, I do something a little different. I've used the Pomodoro technique, which is 25 minutes on and five minutes off. It works and I stay focused and productive. And finally, talk to somebody. If you're really stuck, talk to someone. It can be a peer, a mentor, a colleague, or your coach. 
talking to other people who are passionate about your work can help, or even people who are passionate about their work. Seeing someone else's work getting done can motivate you to do more, and you might be able to return the favor by doing and being the same to others. Remember, almost every successful person begins with two beliefs. The future can be better than the present, and I have the power to make it so. We're going to take a short break to thank our sponsor, Walking on the Glass Floor. And when we come back, you're going to hear from my special guest who will share his thoughts about being focused and keeping your distractions away. This is Selling in a Skirt with Judy Hoberman on C-Suite Radio, and we'll be right back. What happens after shattering the glass ceiling? You're now walking on the glass floor. Walking on the Glass Floor, Seven Essential Qualities for Women Who Lead is a timely and indispensable business guide for all women, whether you're moving out of a dorm room or moving into an executive suite. Introducing readers to the seven keys to success in business and life, Judy Hoberman brings her fresh voice, sales savvy, and thoughtful approach to each of the essential and most powerful leadership qualities. Written in her trademark no-nonsense glass half-full prose, Judy's blueprint for business teaches all women how to cultivate and strengthen key skills that will serve them in both business and life. Uncover amazing qualities they already possess that will help them lead and succeed and harness universal leadership qualities to continue reaching their full potential. By providing authentic real-life case studies and inspiring quotes throughout, Judy fills each page with the timely advice women need right now. Walking on the glass floor is like having Judy Hoberman sitting right next to you as your business mentor, personal life coach, and best friend all at the same time. You can order your own copy of the book at walkingontheglassfloor.com. Welcome back to Selling in a Skirt with Judy Hoberman on C-Suite Radio. Okay, are you ready for my special guest, John Vespasian, the author of 10 books about rational living, including When Everything Else Fails, Try This, Rationality is the Way to Happiness, The Philosophy of Builders, The 10 Principles of Rational Living, Rational Living, Rational Working, Consistency, The Key to Permanent Stress Relief, On Becoming Unbreakable, Thriving in Difficult Times, Sequentially, The Amazing Power of Finding the Right Sequence of Steps, and Undisrupted, How Highly Effective People Deal with Disruptions. John's lived in Germany, Italy, France, Spain, and now the Netherlands. His books combine his passion for history, investing, and personal development, reflecting the philosophy of rational living, productiveness, and respect for the individual. So welcome to the show, John. I am so excited to have you here. Thanks, uh, Julie. Thanks for having me on. So the discussion of the day that I'm talking about is staying focused or keeping your eye on the prize. What do you think when you hear that? Well, it's, uh, it's easier said than done. It's, uh, for, for, for most of us, it's, uh, it's very difficult to have realistic goals. And one of the lessons I learned from researching this book is that uh, when you look at history and you see uh, successful people, on many occasions, you find people who don't have uh, specific goals. What they do have is a sense of direction. They want to go in a certain direction. They want to do something. For instance, I research uh, in detail how people build cathedrals in the 12th century, 13th century. It's very, very difficult to build a cathedral with a low level of technology. And they didn't make specific goals in the sense that uh, we're going to do this by this amount of time because they have to to deal with so many disruptions. But they figure out how to design uh, working systems, very solid uh, working systems, so that they could advance every single day. When they could not work outside, they work indoors. When they could not communicate in writing uh, because people could not read, 
they made drawings on the walls. They always found a way to actually keep going, even if they could not have measurable goals, uh, we tried to do in the 21st century. So I think having goals is fine, but to have a strong sense of direction is even better. Okay, so do you think that you are typically a focused person? Yes, I do, in the, in the sense that I'm writing the books on a steady pace. So I try to write one book per year. And this requires an, a, a huge amount of self-discipline because you have to allocate time for research, for writing, especially also for editing, which takes even longer than writing. Mm. So you, you want to do anything like this in, this in the long term, you have to be very organized. Absolutely. So how do you prepare to keep distractions away and disruptions out? But what I do is, uh, is, is also one of the techniques I present in the book is to try to break down everything I do into pieces, the time, the allocation of effort, so that I can work for a certain amount of time, a certain amount of stuff. If I want to write or I want to do something, I just do it for, for one hour, two hours, and then I do something else. Even mm-hmm. if I could go on, I try to diversify the types of activities and the type of projects so that uh, if one project gets stuck, because I cannot find the inputs I need or because it takes longer than, than I expected to publish the book, then I can work on something else. So for me, something that works extremely well is to break down my time, to break down my activities, to break down my, my projects so that I can always move forwards, even if I get stuck in one specific project. Yeah, and that's why I was saying I like the Pomodoro because it's 25 on, five off, and you have to take the five off. So like you're saying, even if you could go further, you have to take the five minutes and just get a break, even a mental break, whatever it is. So I agree that even when you can go for hours, you, you need to stop. So do you think that social media is a major disruptor? I think the, the effects are a bit uh, exaggerated because when you look in history, when you look at the 17th century, 18th century, where they didn't have any kind of stuff, they didn't have electricity. They had other distractions. They didn't have smartphones, but there was constant interactions from neighbors. There were problems with a sickness that we don't have today. They had problems with simple logistics because it was very expensive to travel. So they have other kinds of uh, problems. So the, the same techniques that people use in the Middle Ages in the 18th century to get things done, these are the same techniques we can use today. It's not that because we have social media, we are living in a different universe. Uh, you mm-hmm. have to realize, yes, you have social media, but you can order groceries online and save hours that people only 10 years ago, they need to go there and buy the groceries. I think we have advantages and disadvantages, but the techniques for avoiding disruptions and getting over problems, they're exactly the same as uh, centuries ago. Interesting. Very interesting way to look at it. Okay. So let's talk about your newest book, Undisrupted. Like, What made you sit down and write this particular segment of the whole rational living? The idea came from reading a biography of an industrialist. Uh, his name is uh, Saba Mamontov. Uh, he was a very famous industrialist in the 19th century in, uh, in Russia. He was the Russian equivalent of Andrew Carnegie, a railroad uh, executive. Mm-hmm. The biography is very interesting uh, because Mamontov was a celebrity. He was very wealthy investor and executive, and he destroyed his life within a few years. He was running a major railroad in Russia, and at a certain point, he started a different business. He wanted to get into a steel manufacturing. He started a steel mill, and it was a complete disaster. He started to lose money, and instead of closing it down, which is uh, what I would have recommended, he started to take money from the railroad to cover the losses of the uh, steel mill. So his shareholders 
Eventually, they found about it and they sued him. Uh, the, he was prosecuted for embezzlement and he lost everything. Eventually, he didn't go to jail because he didn't take the money for himself. He was just trying to keep the company alive, but he lost everything. He's lost his houses, his shares, his art collection, and he spent the last 30 years of his life in total misery. I found the story very interesting because he was very sophisticated. He was highly educated. He could speak several languages, but still he made the quintessential mistake. The, one of the mistakes I present in the book that you should never make is to try uh, to get into areas you know nothing about. And mm. when you realize that uh, you made a mistake, you should actually go back and say, okay, this is not my area. I go back to what I can do and I stop doing this. And Mamont of this did exactly the opposite. He started to improvise. And one of the great mistakes you will find in the stories in the book, people who go down, they improvise. Interesting. Tell us what does a disruption actually look like in today's world? What, what does it, especially for a person that is trying to do amazing things, what does a disruption look like? Look, I was just listening to the news uh, 10 minutes ago in the car, and they were interviewing uh, homeless people in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what disruption looks like. Uh, people who were having a job, they were having a family, and then they got sick. They couldn't pay for the operation. They lost the house. They were on the street. They lost the children. Uh, they got to divorce. This is major disruption. Mm-hmm. And this happens to, happens to millions of people, actually, when you look not only in the U.S., but around the world. This kind of major disruptions that put your life upside down, this is what the book is about. How to prevent them and how to actually get over them. And one of the reasons why you have these stories, I mean, really heartbreaking stories about uh, homeless people, is because they were, in the first place, they were very vulnerable. Maybe they thought they were doing well because they had a job and they were paying the rent. But when you look at the background story, they were very vulnerable. They had very chaotic uh, lifestyles. They didn't have any savings. Their health was always on the brink of collapse. So this kind of vulnerabilities is uh, something I warn people about. Uh, you want to have a smooth life with steady success. Don't make yourself unnecessarily vulnerable because sooner or later, it will break down. The rope will break and you will find yourself either uh, homeless or with a heart attack or something worse. So to become vulnerable is, uh, is a matter of choice. You can have an accident, like everybody can have a road accident, but to have systematic uh, vulnerability is a choice. Okay, so here's an interesting question that I have in my head as you're speaking about this. We hear the word disruption and we tend to think of it always as a negative. Are there positive disruptions that we should welcome in or should we still not bring them into what we're trying to do? Yes, absolutely. I'm not trying to say in the book that it's perfectly possible to have a smooth life and you always be successful and you always be happy. This is nonsense. What I'm trying to say is that you can minimize mm-hmm. uh, disruptions. And in some situations, especially when you're stuck in your career, when you're stuck in your job and there is no perspective to improve or there is a st- you're stuck in, a, in relationships, you're stuck in, in some situation where you, you cannot just uh, improve, you have to go through some disruptions in order to improve. There is no way you can make a situation better just by doing the same. Right. The question is how to go through the disruptions with minimum risk. And this right. is something that I analyze in detail in the book. There are different techniques to do that. The last thing I want you to do is to improvise. Never improvise. Try to go step by step, and then uh, your chances of success will multiply. 
Okay, so let's talk about, you know, you said that a disruption could be a divorce, it could be a sickness or so on. So let's assume somebody goes through a divorce and it's a major disruption, because it usually is. Whether whether you've asked for it or not, it's, it's a major disruption. But you meet someone and you decide to get married. Isn't that also a disruption? Yeah, it's a, it's a, all of these are changes, not necessarily disruptions. Oh, okay. Um, that's, they, that's what they, I'm trying they, to figure they, out. Yeah, the idea uh, is that you should try to move in a direction which is consistent. Yes. So if you, if you, if you choose uh, your romantic partner, someone who is compatible with your goals, long-term goals, or compatible with your lifestyle, compatible with your ideas, the chances of success uh, multiply exponentially. But if you get into a relationship with someone who has a completely different taste, completely different uh, lifestyle, just because she or he is very handsome or because he happens to be around, this is very dangerous because sooner or later, the discrepancies uh, will emerge mm-hmm. and the problems will compound. And the same goes for divorce. When you have, when you realize you made a mistake or something didn't work, you, one of the best prescriptions I give in the book is go back to your basics, go back to your basic skills go back to an area you know very well, go back to your friends, and then you stabilize the situation and you are able to go back uh, dating or whatever you want to do. But don't improvise. Don't get into a new town, new people, a new job, because the chances of disaster are very, very high. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. You encourage your readers to embrace certain types of disruptions. So give me an example of disruption that I might think is not a good thing to have, but you think I should, you would encourage me because it is really something that I should be open to. What would that look like? Well, let me, let me give you an example. Yes. One of the stories I, I recount in the book is the life of Albert Schweitzer. He was a very mm-hmm. famous humanitarian in the 1960s, yep. 1950s. And Schweitzer changed his life in a very radical way. He was a professor at the university in uh, Strasbourg in France. He was teaching theology. But the problem is that he wasn't happy. He wanted to do something else. He wanted to be a missionary. He wanted to go to Africa. He wanted to change his life. He changed his profession. And everybody told him, oh, you're crazy. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose the stability. You're going to lose your career. He was a very clever man. He thought, okay, uh, maybe I'm just uh, talking nonsense. This is going to be a very radical change. Maybe I will fail. Maybe I will lose everything. So he did the right thing. And this is what I really recommend to people who want to change their career. When he went to Africa, he went through a process of training. He, he, he got trained as a, as a physician to get a job as a medic, as a doctor in Africa. But the risk was so high, and this is like when you start in a new business and when you start in a new career, the risk was so high that he had a plan B. And this is something that when you're starting a business or you're starting a career, you should always have because this will reduce your levels of stress and will make you more efficient and more calm. And what Schweitzer did as a plan B was to, to keep practicing music because he was playing the organ in the cathedral every Sunday and every Saturday. He was a very good uh, performer. And he thought, if everything fails and I cannot make a living in Africa and I have to go back and I cannot go back to my job at the university, I can always make a living uh, teaching music and performing music. So when he went to Africa, and it was a super risky operation, he took with him uh, a second-hand upright piano he bought very inexpensively, and he practiced every day for an hour when he was in Africa, every day of the year. And from time to time, when he ran out of money, uh, he went back to Europe, and he raised money by playing music in cathedrals. 
and he did it for decades very successfully. So this kind of plan B, which for you could be a second job, it could be a, a different skill, could be whatever. This kind of plan B is ideal because it has almost zero cost and it will help you stay calm uh, when you have to go through uh, different uh, adversities and situations. You mentioned at the beginning of the show the story of a miner who was looking for gold mm-hmm. who stopped very, very close to the end because he didn't know uh, what to do and he was afraid and he, he gave up. And the, the idea of having a plan B like Schweitzer is that you will never give up because you will always feel safe. You will always feel that you can fall back on something. People who start a new business or new career without a plan B, they make themselves unnecessarily stressed, very anxious, and this uh, shows in their uh, performance. Because if you depend on just one thing and you made a mistake, you become extremely depressed. Okay, so I totally agree that you should have a plan B. And yet I've read stories and case studies and statistics. They say that when you come into something with a plan B, you're automatically setting yourself up for failure. And I don't agree with that because I think that you should have a plan B because if plan A doesn't work, I mean, I can understand not having plan A through Z, 26 different ways to get out of it, but I agree that you should have a plan B. Why do you think people are you know, so against that? They're, they just say, stay focused on one thing and that's it. Don't, if it doesn't work, you try something else and not, you know, not have a plan B available. Why do you think people say that? Yeah, because the, the stories from which you get these uh, statistics, they are biased. I mean, you always hear about the 1% of companies that succeed and you don't hear about the other 99%. And then people who succeed, yeah, you know, I always knew I was going to succeed. I mean, you get this kind of story all the time. Uh, what I recommend in the book is to go organically, to grow organically, to develop your skills, to develop your, your marketing, to develop your company, wherever, little by little. Because you will make mistakes inevitably. You will think about a business that later on will be completely different. And you start to sell uh, products and eventually you end up selling services because you realize you have not read the market correctly. And this happens to most business people. Uh, they start to do one thing and 10 years later, they are doing something completely different because they, they fine-tune their strategy as they go along. But the great advantage of having a plan B, of having a, a fallback, could be savings, uh, could be family support, could be whatever. The, the idea of having always uh, some reserves has a, a major psychological advantage. For most people, to start anything new creates enormous anxiety, enormous fear. And if you just keep some backup plan, whatever it is, you will be much more effective. So tell me, where does a positive mindset come into play? This is a very interesting uh, subject because I devoted a whole chapter to that, to study to which extent positive thinking or optimism, if you want to give it a general Mm -hmm. name, to which extent influences success and failure, people who are able to deal with disruptions. And the answer is surprising because in most cases, when people are just repeating to themselves, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it, I'm going to be successful, in most cases, it doesn't work. It could be counterproductive because people refuse to see their mistakes. They continue to cheer themselves up artificially to ignore criticism, to ignore mistakes, to ignore a reality. And this is very dangerous. And I think this is one of the reasons why you have 50 million people taking medication against stress and anxiety, because they have very unrealistic ideas. The right way to profit from positive thinking is to link it to positive action. 
And actually, the person who invented uh, positive thinking in the 19th century was not an American. He was a Frenchman. His name was Hue. Uh, he was a pharmacist. And he started to use positive thinking in his pharmacy to try to convince people to take the medication. And when he, they bought the herbal preparations he was selling, his name was Emil Kue, he kept the statistics, very detailed statistics about how suggestion about uh, recovery was helping people to get better. And he told, look, look, you take this uh, infusion every day, twice a day, and you will get better in, in five weeks. And people became very motivated to actually take the medication and to change the lifestyle, to change their sleeping patterns, whatever it was. And they came back and they say, I'm recovered. You are an amazing pharmacist. <laughs> and Kue kept the statistics. And the conclusion is that positive thinking works if you link it to positive action. If you take positive thinking in an abstraction and you, you decouple positive thinking from reality, it's a complete waste of time. Interesting. Very interesting. So what started your great passion about rational living? Why did this become your, your life's work and writing so many books on it and more to come, I'm sure? What struck out for you? What was that, that moment when you knew, I've got to take care of this topic? It came out of uh, fear, uh, frustration, dissatisfaction, because I've been reading books about personal development for, for decades. And uh, about uh, 10 years ago, I realized I could not find the kind of message I wanted to find, uh, something very factual, very realistic, based on history, based on, on, on facts. And I started to write the kind of books I could not find. I'm still doing that, trying to draw from real stories, from real people, from real history trying to draw practical principles to live more effectively. And uh, I, I'm fascinated by this subject, so I try to apply the idea of rational living uh, in different areas. So every book is applying the principles in different areas. But of course, there is, this is a lifetime uh, activity, a lifetime mission, because there is so much to learn uh, from history. Do you think there is a difference between the way men or women deal with disruption or rational living? Is there a difference? Have you studied you know, the genders? Uh, yes, there is, a, there is a difference. And in the book, I present stories of several women who have gone through disruptions and they have developed different strategies. I have to say the psychology of the, the female psychology is different. It is not worse or better, but it's different mm -hmm. uh, because women tend to be more social, tend to be more oriented uh, to their environment, to the social environment, uh, while men most of us tend to be more, more factual, more individualistic, more focused on, on doing things. And you see how women tend to choose uh, professions that are more uh, related to human interaction, while men tend to choose professions that are more related to dealing with things or dealing with procedures. I mean, this is a generalization, of course, but it makes a difference when you get a, a disruption. It makes a difference on the kind of response that women tend to give and the response that men tend to give. Uh, and this is something that is ingrained uh, in human psychology. I don't think it's a question of being sexist or not. No. Uh, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a fact of biology, and it, uh, it enriches our life. But you have to be realistic that you cannot expect men to behave like women or women to behave like men. I think this is a mistake. Absolutely. And not all women are this and not all men are that. So yeah, I agree with that. So how can our listeners connect with you, find out more about rational living and more about Undisrupted and, and everything that you're doing? I'm very, very easy to find. You just type my name, John Vespasian on Google. You will find in a second my books. My, there's a blog with hundreds and hundreds of free articles. 
there is a free newsletter. Uh, you will find my material very, very easily. Uh, just type uh, John Vespasian on Google. Excellent. Well, John, I want to thank you so much for sharing the mic with me. You've got amazing information. I love what you're talking about and how easy it is to understand rational living. So I'm glad we're connected and I look forward to creating adventures together. Many thanks, uh, Judy. Thank you. And I want to leave everyone with this quote. The only order in the universe is just a cycle of calm and chaos. It's time for you to know the difference between an opportunity and a distraction. I thank you all for listening to our discussion where we share some extraordinary guests, some ideas for your business and ways to stand out as the amazing women that you are. Now make sure you stay connected with us. And remember, women want to be treated equally, not identically. Until next time, this is Selling in a Skirt with Judy Holberman on C-Suite Radio. Like what you just heard, visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.